Give it a great deal of thought, Grandpa. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. November 22nd, 1963, almost 60 years ago, and those were the first words those outside of Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, had that day uh, that something enormous had occurred. And it was a little bit later on that Walter Cronkite uh, took to the airwaves to inform Americans and the rest of the world that indeed John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, had been killed. So it was a huge moment, 20th century history. And as we approach the 60th anniversary of that day, there's inevitably going to be a lot of interest in what unfolded in the impact of that. But it's hard to imagine that there would be something new that emerges after all these years and all these investigations and everything that's been said and written about the assassination. Well, coming up on October 10th, a Secret Service agent who was there that day is releasing a new book. Paul Landis has written a book called The Final Witness. And one of the things he talks about in the book, and it's kind of an explosive uh, revelation here, that the bullets that was found on the floor in the hospital near Texas Governor John Connolly's stretcher, that he was the one who removed that from the vehicle. He put it in his pocket. He says he put it on Kennedy's stretcher. So this is not something that anybody knew, and this is not something that he had disclosed at any point of the last 60 years. Does this change anything? What do we make of that? It's certainly, I think, going to revive interest and, I guess, other theories or conspiracy theories, if you will, around what happened that day. Well, someone who has written extensively about the Kennedy assassination, including his seminal book called Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the Assassination of JFK, is investigative journalist and author Gerald Posner, who joins us on the line here this afternoon. Gerald, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Uh, Rob, great to be with you. You're right. I mean, coming into a 60th anniversary, you'd expect, you know, the assassination to come back on the, the news radar as it is. But nobody expected this sort of bombshell from an 88-year-old former Secret Service agent. Yeah. And I mean, look, it is significant. I mean, he, he was there that day. So he's he's an important right. figure. And, and yes, the fact that, you know, there's potentially something new here that we didn't know after all of these years and all of these investigations, it, it is rather surprising. Yeah, no, I agree. And look, at you know, my first reaction was you have to take uh, what Paul Landis, the agent, says seriously, because, as you say, he was one of the people that was there that day. He was on the car directly behind the president's uh, limousine on the backup car. He was there at Parkland Hospital when the doctors, you know, feverishly tried to resuscitate a mortally wounded Kennedy. Uh, he was standing next to Jacqueline Kennedy much of the time. And now he tells a story for the first time in 60 years that he's never told before. He's, you know, he gave statements uh, to investigators uh, after the assassination four days after and seven days after. But now 60 years later, he says, oh, by the way, I never told any of you beforehand that in all the, the craziness that was taking place when we arrived at Parkland Hospital, I saw a bullet, a whole bullet on the back seat. And I grabbed that bullet and I made an immediate decision. I didn't tell anybody about it. I put it in my jacket pocket. And then later, instead of turning it in or telling anyone I found the bullet, I put it on the stretcher next to Jack Kennedy's feet. And then I forgot about it over time. And I never followed the assassination of the investigation. And although it was important, it never seemed that big of a deal to me later. But here's the story. And it's remarkable on so many levels that, you you know, it, it almost takes your breath away to think, you know, if accurate, pretty amazing to think that, you know, you could be a member of the Secret Service that they find a, a whole bullet in the car in which the bloody president has just been removed and moved into the hospital and not immediately turn it in as maybe the most important piece of evidence in a murder investigation of its kind. But that's what he says he did. OK, what we we know about this bullet or had known about this bullet beforehand, I, I think it, it had fallen on the floor at one point, maybe in the hospital, which seemed as though it was coming off uh, the, the stretcher of, of uh, Texas Governor John Connolly. And then maybe the assumption it had been lodged in him. Was that kind of the understanding? Yeah, this bullet is the so-called single bullet. Critics like Oliver Stone like to deride it as the magic bullet. But right. ballistics experts have pretty much been able to show in the last uh, 20 and 30 years, even if you think there were multiple shooters, or you think there was a conspiracy or whatever else, that at least that one bullet 
did in fact inflict the wounds on President Kennedy and Connolly, a series of wounds. And then was later found when it fell on the floor, as you said, off a stretcher at Parkland Hospital. And when that happened, by the way, you know, it was it was found by the chief engineer of the hospital. He was walking along. There were two empty stretchers, gurneys in the hallway. He bumped into them. He didn't know which one he had bumped into. One, it turned out, had been the stretcher that brought Governor Connolly into the hospital. So the Warren Commission assumed, oh, that has to be the stretcher then that the bullet was probably on because it came out of Connolly's thigh where it finally ended up. It barely pierced the skin there. And even the doctor who did surgery on Connolly was looking for the bullet because he said it's a superficial wound, the final wound. I know that bullet's here somewhere, but could never find it. The other stretcher that was in the hallway next to Connolly's was brought in for a young boy who was brought into emergency just around the same time as the president of that. And the Warren Commission assumed it couldn't have come from that structure because that would have nothing to do with the case. Mm-hmm. But with Paul Landis's account, we can't be sure anymore. Landis says he put it on Kennedy's structure. This is a 60-year-old memory, you know, even if he remembers getting the bullet. But he now says in an interview I just saw the other day that, well, maybe that Kennedy structure was moved out next to Conley's structure and the bullet fell onto that. He, you know, he's moved it a little bit. So I'm not sure how it gets onto one of the two structures in the hallway that the chief engineer runs into. But maybe Paul Landis has provided us finally, after 60 years, the evidence as to how that much contested single bullet ended up on a stretcher in Parkland Hospital. Right. So in a way, I mean, it, it does add uh, to our understanding of what happened. But I think maybe what what's, you know, critics are going to pick up on are those inclined to believe that maybe there's more to this story. Uh, this is a bullet that, that struck the president before striking Governor Connolly, that maybe one of the implications here is that somehow it ended up back close to Kennedy. Yes, right. And so that's what and as a matter of fact, in order to try to explain that, people have already gone through what I call um, you know, sort of mental acrobatics, which mm-hmm. is to say, well, maybe that bullet that uh, Landis found had a partial gunpowder charge. The assassin had reduced the amount of gunpowder in the bullet and somehow it only went into Kennedy's back and then fell out. I don't know of any assassin who's trying to kill the president who might take one bullet and reduce the gunpowder charge so it might only wound him lightly as opposed to killing him. But even assuming that was the case, they forget that in the autopsy x-rays and the photos and the examination done of the clothes, the, the clothing on Kennedy's back, the suit and the shirt, the fibers of the suit and shirt are pressed in toward the wound. Um, it's not as though a bullet went in and then came back out pushing those fibers the opposite way. So, you know, and, and no bullet just is uh, the true magic bullet would be a bullet fired from a gun that went to the car and just landed on the back seat and didn't wound anybody. It just sort of stopped in midair. Right. So I have my doubts about those explanations. Uh, the thing is, what people forget about, Rob, is that when the, the Secret Service at the hospital orderlies and the doctors ran to the car when it arrived at the limousine. They took the governor, who's six foot three, six foot four, who was wounded badly in the front seat, out of that small jump seat, and the president out of the back. They were not very gentle in doing it. They moved those two men around really rough to get them out. Connolly, especially, you can see in pictures being taken that how he's pushed to the back, his legs are raised up. If that bullet came out there, I'm not surprised it could have landed on the front seat or on the back seat. So, you know, 60 years later, the unfortunate part is we'll never know with certainty because the one thing I can say about Paul Landis is shame on him for not coming out with this years and years ago when everybody was still alive. Investigators could have run it down and found out what happened because now we will end up with a bit of uncertainty possibly forever with people that champion what he says and others who say, no, it's contradicted by the statements of other witnesses. Well, and, and yeah, there's a question of why, why keep it a secret. Maybe his actions that day, we can be a little more for, forgiving, you know, given the chaos and, and just the horror of it all. But it is very strange, isn't it, to, as you say, to, to see this bullet, to pick up this bullet, to pocket this bullet, to carry it around, and then just without telling anybody to just place it on a stretcher. Yeah, and you know, the, the interesting thing is because Landis, uh, it does give um, the nine pages of single-space typewritten uh, statements uh, four and seven days after the assassination and describes in real detail what he 
saw when his memory recollection was the freshest right afterwards. Um, and there are differences between that and the current book coming out. So he heard two shots then. Uh, he hears three shots. He says now his memory. I don't believe people's memory gets better, but okay, for some reason that's how he recalls it now. Um, he recalls seeing a uh, a black man running across near the grassy knoll, crouched down that he thought was suspicious in the 1963 statements. He leaves that out of the current statements. And in the 63 statements, by the way, he does say that he saw on the back seat a lighter that he thought belonged to Jackie Kennedy, um, a, a a pair of glasses, and her purse. And he picked all of those up and brought them into the First Lady. In addition, he saw, a, a, these. he later said, two small bullet fragments. He said he saw one, he now describes them as two, that he left in the car, he picked them up and put them back in the car. But in all of that, he doesn't mention the whole bullet. So he's talking about, you know, the purse, finding the glasses, finding the lighter, seeing the small bullet fragments. But what he leaves out is sort of the big item, the item that would, you know, set everybody talking, which is finding a whole bullet that he left at Parkland Hospital. And that's the part that, you know, you look at and you just have to shake your head in dismay. Right. Now, it's not just what he did and what he saw, but there's also what he heard. Now, in, in that sense, maybe his insight is, is no deeper or better than anybody else who was in Dealey Plaza. But shots were fired. Shots, you know, the sound of those shots certainly echoed. So what do we make of his account for what he claims he heard versus what everybody else heard that day? Yeah, you know, I, I don't give much credence to what I call, I, although I discuss them extensively in case closed, I have a chapter about what I call the ear witnesses, the mm -hmm. people who were there who heard something and then reported it. And and they were all over the place because, as you said, Adili Plaza is a bit of an echo chamber. So the largest number of people, about 40%, heard three shots, but some heard four shots, some heard five. Landis heard only two, which is in a real minority. Very few heard two or fewer. Um, now, and he said the first one was from behind him and to the right, which would be the general area of the Texas School Book Depository, the building where Lee Harvey Oswald was left on the sixth floor by his co-workers a half an hour before the assassination. And then the other one he thought came in front of him toward the, the front toward the grassy knoll. And a number of people thought that there was a front shot that day, um, something I think the evidence of the autopsy and x-ray photo shows was not the case, or at least no one firing from the front hit the president that day. But now he says there were three shots. He gives a longer and more detailed explanation of it. And and I just am of the view, you know, I'm a lawyer by trade and investigative reporter for a long time. If you've changed your story after 60 years with more details and a better recall, you've got to give me a real good reason as to why that would be accurate. And so if he said, I, I took notes and I've kept memos and I have a diary and I've never shown it to anybody. So I can go back to that diary and see what I was really thinking back in 1963 or 64. That would be persuasive. But he actually says he hasn't thought about the case. And so we know memories, you know, fill in with sort of what I call he's sincere. I think he's telling you the truth is he knows it. But I'm, I'm not trusting his memory on details like the shot recall at this point. I understand he, he was not one of the Secret Service agents who, who gave testimony to the Warren Commission. Is, is that odd? I mean, who knows? Maybe if he'd said uh, all of this at the time, that, that would have been different. But what are we to make of that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I always I, I'm, it's fascinating how things are sometimes fun that it makes the general public. And I and I understand this more suspicious about an event. So one of the stories in the New York Times when the story was broken by a very good reporter, Peter Baker, um, he, he said uh, something that Paul Landis says, which is, gee, I was hoping to talk to the Warren Commission, but they never took my testimony. You immediately think if you're just a member of the public, well, something stinks about that. Here's the guy with the biggest story I've heard in 60 years. They're very convenient. The Warren Commission decided not to talk to him. Now, if you actually realize what happened is there were 22 Secret Service agents assigned to the Dallas uh, detail uh, that President Kennedy was at. Twelve of them were writing in the motorcade. All of them ended up giving statements like Landis. And then the Warren Commission lawyers picked five of them for testimony that they thought were the ones who saw the most or had the most to recount. There's no doubt that if Paul Landis had said he picked up a whole bullet, he was going to be agent number one before the Warren Commission. But he just wasn't. His statements were not that extraordinary in terms of what he said he saw at that time, although they were detailed. 
And so it's not surprising that he was one of the 17 that didn't get called. In your own work on this over the years, I mean, have, have you ever interacted with him or, or have your paths crossed? And I mean, would, would you be interested in, in talking to him or, or asking him any of these questions now? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd be very interested in asking him the questions. And I do think that he will be uh, available and a lot of people will be asking him questions over the uh, over the coming couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, I had not, I saw him. I knew who he was by looking. There's a there's a very there are a lot of famous photos from that day of the motorcade. There's one in particular where the limousine is turning uh, right onto Main Street and Clint Hill, who is the Secret Service agent, one of his colleagues, who later is famous for throwing himself sort of on the back hood, rear of the car as the the assassination was playing out and risking life and limb as the car raced off to Parkland Hospital. Hill is on the back of the limousine. There's a position the Secret Service agents could take there, and they rode along in a crouched position hanging onto the car. You can see Landis very directly. He's on the back of the car. He's the second Secret Service agent standing on the running boards along the side. So I always knew I have I have a diagram printout of the motorcade and who was in each car and you know which agents were on the running boards. I always knew that that was Landis. I knew what he looked like, but I never uh, had any interaction with him or any reason to talk to him up until now. What does this do then to the um, the conspiracy theories or or the the rejection of the official narrative? Maybe the uh, kinds of arguments I'm sure you've been encountering for many many years. Does this now fan those flames in conjunction with the anniversary, is this likely to lead to maybe somewhat of a resurgence in all of that? I think it will. Um, the Although I see Landis's account uh, with this sort of embellishments that can be shown to be false because they are contradicted by what others at the hospital orderlies, medical staff or doctors said at the time. If you take the embellishments out, his underlying story, in my view, actually solves the little mystery of the single bullet. But for most people who look at the case, or especially those who think it's a conspiracy, that will be far too small a conclusion to reach. And I think that uh, what they will say is that the bullet that Landis found is an additional bullet. It's not just the one that came off the the stretcher that Conley bumped into. It must be another bullet fired. And if it's another bullet, another whole bullet in very good condition, that would mean a second shooter because Oswald would not have had time to get off more than three shots. And you'd have a conspiracy from the get-go. So I think that people will cite Landis's testimony and uh, as evidence of uh, the mysterious second shooter um, who somehow fired a bullet that landed hole in the car and uh, and didn't hit anyone. Well, you've got a write-up on your substack about Landis uh, and his story, uh, justthefacts.media, much more at uh, posner.com. Of course, uh, your book, Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the Assassination of JFK. Uh, Gerald, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate the insight on all this. Rob, thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, there you go. Some interesting perspective on these new allegations, what we know about what transpired that day, and in particular, the bullets that were fired and obviously ultimately killed John F. Kennedy. That's Gerald Posner, author of the book Case Closed. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. When people entrust their child to someone else, they expect their child will receive the best possible care. Families are watching in anguish, watching their children suffer from a preventable cause. They're enduring extreme stress, afraid of what the outcome will be and how this will affect their child's health. It's unimaginable pain, and I'm heartbroken by what these family families are going through. <laughs> Yeah, it was an emotional uh, Premier Daniel Smith speaking down at a press conference today addressing this uh, whole E. coli outbreak situation. 337 confirmed cases now. Uh, Fortunately, the number of children in hospital has declined. Uh, But as we still await further test results, officials say uh, the number of total cases is likely still to rise. And in fact, even today, health officials pointed to a case of E. coli in a child who does not attend one of the daycares linked to the outbreak. source of this outbreak, though, remains a mystery. 
and it speaks to, well, I mean, all of this speaks to a lot of different things, but certainly it attests to how difficult it can be to pinpoint the source of an outbreak. And even though most strains of E. coli are, are not that harmful, there are some strains that can cause serious illness and even lasting damage. And tragically, that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, so there's six kids right now on dialysis. And that's part of the concern about the damage this can potentially do to small intestines, to kidneys, and some lasting impact from all of this. Uh, so this already is one of Canada's uh, worst E. coli outbreaks. And I believe in terms of food-linked E. coli outbreaks, which is what the operating assumption is, uh, this could go down as the worst. So what do we know about all of this? And, and why is it that this particular strain of E. coli can cause so much damage? Why is it so hard in these cases to understand maybe where it came from? Joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Stephen Friedman, uh, who's a professor in the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary, the Department of Pediatrics, also with the Alberta Children's Hospital. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, my pleasure, Rob. Uh, so let's talk first of all about what it is we're, we're talking about, E. coli, this, this uh, form of bacteria. And there are different strains uh, of E. coli, I think, typically do reside in, in like the lower intestines. What do we need to know about E. coli, first of all? Yeah, you know, E. coli is a, is a very large family of bacteria. And it's actually almost a, um, a, the fact that this strain gets lumped in with a larger family is almost a misnomer because often in the medical community we talk about this as shiga toxin producing E. coli or STEC, which is a very different kettle of fish from all the other E. coli's that we generally see. Most E. coli's will cause, when they cause an intestinal infection, they cause some mild watery diarrhea for a couple of days that is self-resolving um, and really no long-term or even short-term acute complications usually ensue. For this type of E. coli, the shiga toxin producing E. coli, they produce a toxin and in addition to the much more symptomatic acute uh, presentation with the bloody diarrhea that you've probably talked about a lot on your show right. is that these children can also develop the toxin goes into the bloodstream and it's the effects that the toxin has on the body that leads to some of the complications that you've been describing already related to kind of kidney injury being a, a very cardinal manifestation of and classic complication of shiga toxin producing E. coli infection. Now, this could also live inside animals, but it does, does it have different uh, effects or impacts on, on animals versus humans? Yeah, so actually this bacteria, the shiga toxin producing E. coli, that is so harmful to humans, and particularly young children, the, the under five age group is the most vulnerable when infected by this and are most likely to have complications. But this type of bacteria, the shiga toxin producing E. coli, they live in cattle. It's a normal bacterial colonizing uh, organism that is inside cattle all the time. Just like our intestines are full of thousands of different bacterial strains that cause us no harm, this one does causes no harm to cattle. The problem is when the cattle excrete it, it then goes into the uh, environment and then contaminate food. Or sometimes during the slaughter process, it can contaminate meat. And either of those is how it gets into kind of a foodborne outbreak sort such as this. Right. Well, and what appears to be a foodborne outbreak, uh, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly the, the source of this. Uh, wh why is it so challenging? Well, you know, you know, the inspectors um, unfortunately didn't get to the daycares until I believe it was the Tuesday following um, the the outbreak, which we started to see the children initially present to the hospital on Friday and predominantly initially the big day that initially triggered the concern of the outbreak was the Saturday. So there was quite a delay of almost about five days, um, if not six probably, between potential time of exposure and time of looking for the food source. And so obviously there are multiple food sources and so tracking that down and then getting your hands on the food source. And it's possible the food source may no longer be present. So maybe it was all consumed, maybe it was discarded. Um, and so it can be challenging to, to find it if it's not available. Actually, that's the prob potentially the biggest concern at this point in time. Right. And, and once we realized we were dealing with E. coli, it, it became easier then to, to identify possible cases based on symptoms. But, you know, those, those first cases, would, would it have necessarily been obvious? Can this resemble or, or mirror other gastrointestinal illnesses? 
You know, it can initially, but I would say that by that Saturday, the physicians at the Alberta Children's Hospital, um, we communicate quite closely, and we realize the number of children presenting with um, bloody diarrhea on the same day who all attended similar daycares. Initially, it was one daycare, and then a second daycare started to come in that day predominantly. We realized there was something going on that this was a food outbreak, and the most likely etiology was sugar toxin-producing E. coli. Just the symptoms of the children were so characteristic of this type of bacteria that we rarely see it uh, with other types of uh, enteric infections or stool infections. What kind of testing needs to be done to, to confirm the presence of this bacteria? So the most important thing that we do with children with bloody diarrhea, number one, we make sure the children are uh, stable, medically stable, so their, yeah. their heart rate's not too high, they're not too dehydrated, their blood pressure is okay. And if that's okay, then what we really move into then is looking to see if any other complications are ensuing, so electrolyte abnormalities or anything else from the dehydration. But really the way we make this diagnosis is we need to get a stool specimen. So we either collect stool from the child after they, they excrete it, or sometimes actually we've actually adopted a pathway here in uh, southern Alberta that we've pioneered essentially um, in that we obtain rectal swabs if the children don't have stool immediately available to expedite the diagnostic process at the Alberta Children's Hospital and now at South Health Campus. Um, about three years ago, we started using rectal swabs so that we can get a specimen right then and there when the child is in the emergency department and send that off for t- testing to identify the bacteria. Something else I wanted to clear up, because we were talking about a bacteria, but this wouldn't necessarily be something that antibiotics would be used for, is that correct? You are 100% correct. Actually, in fact, studies to date um, have shown that if you give antibiotics to a child with this infection, you increase their risk of developing the hemolytic uremic syndrome. And while the exact mechanism is not known, it can alter the genetic expression of the toxin. And so it's hypothesized that, uh, that we think that it, when you try to kill the bacteria with the antibiotic, you increase the toxin release, which then goes into the bloodstream, which leads to an increased risk of the complications. So we almost, I mean, actually, number one, we actually really make it very clear to individuals that it should not be used for this infection. And it's kind of counterintuitive, as you said, most of us think, oh, let's give antibiotics. And so this is one classic infection where we shouldn't, and which is why we don't recommend giving antibiotics to children with diarrhea in general. Um, It's because of this feared complication that we may increase uh, worse outcomes. That's an interesting point. So what kind of, of treatment then would be involved in hospital? So for children, I mean, it all varies, right? So you can have the acute infection where the biggest issue is usually pain and dehydration. So we maintain hydration status because we do also know that dehydration increases the risk of bad outcomes in children who develop the HUS. Children who develop hemolytic uremic syndrome need several things, generally speaking. One, it's very frequent monitoring, and we do that for all kids who have this type of infection. And then the second is we actually often need to get blood transfusions because their red blood cell counts go very low. So about 80% of children with HUS need to have a blood transfusion. And then unfortunately, 50 to 60% of the children with HUS ultimately require dialysis for the short term. And then really the other third element that we do is we monitor for potential complications because the toxin affects all the small blood vessels in the body and our small blood vessels in the body are in all of our organs. So we can have complications across multiple, if not many different organs simultaneously. So these can include the brain, the heart, the lungs, um, the liver, the pancreas. So all of those can have a variety of different complications due to the inflammation and the, uh, the blockages of these small blood vessels. Wow. There's all that to say though, the body then eventually does, does clear the bacteria? Yeah, so the bacteria is already often goes away early on in the process. Okay. So that, that once the diarrhea starts to resolve, that's not the bacteria that's the problem. It's the toxin. Mm-hmm. So the toxin goes into the body, you know, after a couple of days following the onset of the infection, and then it causes damage, peaking generally around day seven after the diarrhea starts. Then the toxin effects start to gradually go away. But it is just a question of supporting them through these, if you kind of imagine it being a blockage of these small blood vessels, that the body gradually breaks up that blockage and allows the blood flow to resume so those complications start to improve 
kidney function starts to resume, but the the degree and the severity of the long-term effects all depend on the uh, severity of the initial insult, essentially. Right. So that question then about sort of short to medium term impacts and much longer term or even lifetime kinds of complication, that, that's, that's hard to predict early on then. So it's very hard to predict early on. Every child is is unique and distinct, and, you know, we tailor our care to every child. You know, there are certain things that we do know is that the uh, if you do require dialysis, your risk of having chronic kidney uh, dysfunction is higher. And we also know that the longer the duration of the dialysis, the longer it takes for your kidneys to recover, the greater the likelihood that you'll have longer-term kidney uh, impacts. If their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. Well, that was uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking yesterday following the Liberal caucus retreat in London, Ontario. And yes, all of this has some real political undertone to it. I mean, the Liberals are struggling in the polls. I think there's a, a, maybe a belated realization uh, that issues around housing and affordability are top of mind for Canadians and a perception from that that the government really isn't doing much about those issues. So they're seeking to change that, kind of a, a flurry of announcements this week, but including that yesterday regarding food prices. Canada's big grocers have to come up with a plan to stabilize food prices by Thanksgiving where the government says they will take action. Okay, so what might that entail? Now, something else that the government is looking at is changes to the Competition Act. And Federal Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne said next week he's going to meet with the heads of the five largest grocery chains. What we're saying to, uh, to them is enough is enough. Uh, you know, it's always a good time to fight for Canadians. It's always a good time to fight for lower prices. Uh, we're going to start next week. Uh, by the way. So this is something that is happening right now. And we're going to be in solution mode with very clear deadline and very clear outcome for Canadians. So one of the changes to the Competition Act would give the Competition Bureau the ability to force companies to hand over information that would allow for studies of any given market, like in this case, studying the grocery market. The Competition Bureau did do a study in the summer But part of the government's argument here is that that study was hampered by a lack of cooperation and a lack of information handed over by these companies. So that's in the works. But it was interesting to note the threat from the prime minister that this could involve some tax measures. Now, that seems to smack of what uh, others have discussed, including the leader of the NDP, uh, that maybe there should be some kind of tax on uh, profits in the grocery industry, a tax on, quote unquote, excess profits. what that might entail, though, I guess, is, is unclear. So, um, w- look, why are food prices stubbornly high? Food inflation has come down, but not uh, as much as overall inflation has come down. But interestingly, we see south of the border uh, that food inflation ha- has improved more so than it has here in Canada. So what are the factors going on here? Is it fair to just blame grocers uh, for grocery prices. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Gary Sands, uh, Senior Vice President with the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. Gary, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to join you. All right. And just for clarity's sake, uh, your, your organization, uh, who is it you represent? Well, we're Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. So there's, uh, there's about 6,900 independent grocers across Canada. Uh, those are, uh, you know, for the most part, um, you know, owned by individuals or, or families, the mm-hmm. non-publicly traded, and many, many of them are in rural, remote, uh, semi-rural, um, and serve Indigenous communities in Canada. So often they can be the only grocery store in town. Yeah. All right. So what did you make of, of all of this talk about Competition Act changes, possible taxes? Uh, what could this all mean? Or what could this possibly mean to smaller independent retailers? Well, that's a that's the million dollar. I guess I should be using billion dollar yeah, question because we're talking about the food industry. But that's a good question. We have the same question because um, you know, for some of the changes that they're proposing to the competition, we as independent grocers would support them because a couple of them we actually called for. Um, uh, but the 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 idea of you know 
pointing at any one sector in the industry, and, and I want to make it very clear to your listeners, I represent Main Street grocers, not Bay Street grocers, but to be fair, you just can't point your finger at the big grocers and say, aha, you're responsible for rising food prices. I can tell you the independent grocers are getting hit with the same increases in, in food prices from the manufacturers or what we call the suppliers that the chains are. And um, we're, I can tell you in the years I've been with CFIG, I've never seen uh, our members receive so many price increases in a year from suppliers. And it can be from the same company. Two, three, four times a year prices will go up. But I want to stress that even so, we don't point our fingers at the suppliers. Right. Now, we don't have the leverage to negotiate um, with a supplier the same way a big retail chain does. But... Um, we know what the factors are that are, are driving up prices. So when the prime minister says, or the government says, they want to stabilize food prices, I guess my first suggestion would be, okay, well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to stabilize some of the factors that are driving up food costs before they even get to retail. That would be, you know, soaring food fuel prices. Uh, we've had some climate change catastrophes in Canada that have yeah. hit us um, in the last couple of years, ongoing labor challenges, and most of all, uh, the impact of the war in the Ukraine. If you can stabilize all of those things, then you're going to stabilize food prices. But to just simply point your finger at one sector and say, aha, you've got to come up with a plan, I, I just think is disingenuous. Well, and here's one of the concerns, and, and I think you can speak to this, because, you know, these supply chain pressures are affecting big grocers, smaller grocers, right, right across the board. So the yep. federal government says lower your prices. You know, maybe Walmart or, you know, a big company can afford to take a bit of a hit and lower their prices while still trying to manage these costs, which I think would further undercut... You know, the, the smaller com- grocers and, and the very kind of competition that we're trying to create here. It, it will. What, what will happen, the, and, and I'm not just blowing smoke at your listeners, mm-hmm. listeners here. I'm telling you that if, if, if re- big chain retailers were forced to lower their prices, there will be consequences. And those conse- their first consequence will be that they'll um, go back to their suppliers and demand lower costs. And what will happen, and it's called, um, there's actually a name for it that's used in different countries, um, uh, and here in Canada, it's called the waterbed effect uh, that's used in the grocery industry. And what it means is that that will have a an effect on the independents. So the prices, the, the suppliers are going to look to make up those those reductions somewhere else, and it will be at the expense of the smaller players who can't negotiate the same way a retail chain would. So the government's got to take that into consideration. Going back to what I said at the beginning, bear in mind, those independent grocers are in a lot of communities where they're the only grocery store in town. So those things have a disproportionately more significant impact on them in those rural and remote communities. And you're treading into, you know, when prices get too high, you're turning into a concern about food security, and I just hope the government is taking that into consideration. So what about the impact of a tax? I, I get the sense that this isn't necessarily aimed at smaller or independent grocers, but maybe there could still be some kind of trickle-down effect. Like, what, what are you worried about when you start hearing this, this talk of new tax measures? I, I, the, the concern I, I have is, is, you know, and again, I'm not here to represent the chains, but my concern would be why are you again picking on one sector to say we have rising food prices so we're going to tax you so are we going to put a special tax on on banks i can tell you we pay retailers in canada pay 10 billion that's b with a b in credit card swipe fees a year you're going to put a tax on them what about the tax on the on the gas companies telecom companies i there's a long list so um i realize we all have to eat and so that you know, maybe makes it a more appealing target, but it's it just, to me, it strikes me as unfair to just say you're responsible and we're going to tax you and we're going to punish you for all the factors that are driving up food costs. Well, I think you speak to, I mean, you know, if the government really wanted to to help with, uh, you know, food affordability, you know, there, there are levers they have to pull. Certainly there are government policies uh, that, that do add some costs, uh, ways of trying to address other other 
parts of the supply chain. Like, you know, the fact that government wants to address this doesn't necessarily have to mean bad policy. But are there ways that the government could make a positive difference? Well, I, I you know, I, I, I have to go back to the, the point I just mentioned. I, and I know it's an invisible thing to consumers, but the, if, if the government was serious about trying to help businesses, especially in the grocery industry, they could sit down and bring and, and with the banks and the credit card companies, do something to reduce those $10 billion in swipe fees. Right. If you think $10 billion a year can be taken out of the pockets of businesses and it's not going to have an impact on prices, think again. And that wouldn't cost the taxpayers a cent. Canada has amongst the highest swipe fees in the world. And the swipe fees that are paid by independent grocers are a lot higher than those paid by companies like Walmart. So that's the first thing the government could do, which wouldn't cost the taxpayer a cent, is why don't we look at that? Yeah. We'll see where this all goes from here. Much more at CFIG.ca. Gary, appreciate your perspective on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Gary Sands. Uh, he is a senior vice president with the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. So his thoughts on why his members are, are worried about uh, all of this talk in Ottawa. And yeah, look, one of the things that came out of the Competition Bureau review is that we need more competition. So sure, we look across the country. There's a whole bunch of kind of smaller players in the grocery industry. Maybe it would help if we could get them a little bit bigger. Instead of being a small player, maybe be a medium player or just less small. But look, you know, going down this path and demanding that the big chains lower the prices, that's a surefire way of further undercutting the small guy. How does that help anything? So all of this seems premised on the notion that uh, grocery prices are high because people selling groceries are greedy. And I think that that's just wrong. That's just not the case. Uh, there's a lot that's been driving of the cost of food. Like, are we going to argue that grocers in Canada are more greedy than their American counterparts? Or is there maybe another reason why food inflation has come down more in the U.S. than it has in Canada? Hey, thanks for being with us on a Friday afternoon here. Rob Breckenridge with you. We'll get to your phone calls coming up here. A few other things to get to as well. After many delays, next month, the trial will finally get underway for a Calgary man uh, who's facing criminal charges in connection with his travels to Syria and alleged terrorist crimes that he committed on behalf of ISIS. Jamal Tan Borhat is his name. Police say between May of 2013 and April of 2014, he traveled to Syria and committed terrorist activities on behalf of or activities that benefited ISIS. Now, this is uh, one of the cases that has proved to be so tricky. What do we do with individuals who went to Syria, to the Middle East and joined up with ISIS and have now returned or have sought to return to Canada? Is it possible to gather evidence as to what they were doing overseas and charge them with crimes? It's a lot easier if someone here in Canada is giving money to ISIS or even some cases where people have attempted to leave to join up with ISIS and they've been apprehended before leaving. But those who have gone and come back, it's tricky. But what's interesting, though, is that even though there are individuals who have been charged, who are facing charges, it seems to be almost exclusively men. We're talking about roughly 100 or so Canadians. Women make up about 20% of that total. Interesting piece of a globalnews.ca explores this question here of why these Canadian women, in some cases who actually have been arrested, but have not actually been charged, not being held to account in the courts. Joining us to talk more about the story, Stuart Bell joins us, investigative reporter with Global News, much more at globalnews.ca. Of course, Stuart, thanks for joining us here. Hi, Rob. So is, is there a straightforward answer to that question? Is, you know, is there a double standard for these men versus these women, or is it more complicated than that? Well, I mean, it is complicated, and, and perhaps there, there is some evidence of a double standard as well. Um, as, we, as you mentioned, something like 20% of the uh, Canadians who decided to uh, leave Canada and go join ISIS were, in fact, women. And... Um, some of those women have now been returning. They've been coming back uh, with government assistance. The Global Affairs Canada has actually been securing their release from detention facilities in northeast uh, Syria 
and flying them back to Canada and repatriating them. But the problem is that, on the one hand, the government is saying that anybody who did what they did would face the full force of Canadian law. Uh, almost none of these women have actually been uh, charged over their alleged involvement with ISIS. And it, um, for researchers that are kind of keeping track of these things, it does seem like a bit of a double standard because there have been dozens of men who have been uh, convicted, charged, uh, sent to prison over their involvement in ISIS. But uh, for women, it just, it's almost, there, there has only been one woman uh, ever convicted of a terrorism offense in Canada in the history of Canada's anti-terrorism law. So there's a lot of people asking questions about uh, what's going on and whether these women uh, will be, should be held to account for what they did. And so you've managed to track a number of these these women in in terms of who they are, and in some cases we only know them by the init- their initials. When they returned to Canada, what happened once they returned? And and certainly I think many, if not most of them, were held on what's known as a as a peace bond. But just talk about how scattered these cases are, and how how much of a challenge it is then to to gather information on where they stand. Yeah, the, the women have come back to uh, BC, uh, Quebec, Ontario. But actually, a lot of them in Alberta. There's quite a few that have returned uh, to Alberta for whatever reason. And in the, only one of them has been charged. That was a woman in Quebec. Um, all the, the others, almost all the others, were arrested on what are called peace bonds, as you mentioned. Peace bonds are not a criminal charge. They're really just a sort of a, a protective measure that... Um, Police can apply to the courts to impose some restrictions on people under peace bonds. For example, they can, um, you know, they're not allowed to go to websites that are affiliated with ISIS or that kind of thing. So it's really not, uh, it's certainly not um, anything near the equivalent of a criminal charge or a prosecution. Uh, it's simply a forward looking preventive measure that says, hmm, these people may be dangerous. We better do something to protect the public. So, um, it's you know it, it maybe these investigations are still going on they they will result all charges but uh, these women have been back for uh, a year almost uh, some of them and they still have not been uh, charged with any terrorism offenses there's a couple of assumptions that, that maybe seem to be a play here, and I want to try to unpack them a little bit more. Part of it is that maybe these women were sort of forced to go or pressured to go because they were connected to, married to uh, an ISIS member or an ISIS fighter. And then maybe from that, there's the assumption that, well, this is ISIS. They don't let women do what they would view as important things. So they probably weren't really engaged in a whole lot just because of that dynamic. What about those two assumptions? Well, first of all, we do know things about these Canadian women, about what they did. But because of the um, peace bond cases uh, being ongoing, uh, there are publication bans that prevent us from reporting on what they are accused of actually doing when they are over there. But we do know that women actually were quite involved. They may have not have been as high profile as men were. If you recall back, you know, in the days of the heyday of ISIS, um, Canadian men in particular were all over social media making threats and posting pictures. Um, The women, some of them were online, but they do seem to have been a little... um, quieter about what they are up to. But we do know that women uh, were involved in, in um, you know, not just sort of being homemakers, but there was a female battalion of ISIS that trained women. It was headed by an American ISIS member, uh, trained people on, on using AK-47s and suicide vests and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, women did uh, take part in some violence. Women played other roles in terms of indoctrination, recruiting, and financing. Um, so there, you know, there there were a lot of things that women were uh, involved with, aside from the sort of stereotype, which is the sort of ISIS brides view that they were sort of passive, um, just wives to the fighters. Right. And I mean, obviously, it's possible for for women to hold these ideologies and and even these wives if they were, you know, focused on on having children or that sort of thing. They're they're still committed to the cause. Well, you know, uh, even if a woman uh, went to uh, that part of Syria, lived under ISIS, um, you know, they were they 
had were essentially taking part in the invasion of Syria and Iraq yeah. um, by an extremist group. They were living in houses that were they were occupying that the the Syrian you know owners had been uh, evicted from those places and and in some cases uh, uh, we know that uh, Syrians were executed forcibly converted uh, Iraqi Yazidis were uh, turned into slaves. Um, so simply by, um, if you could call it a homemaker or having a domestic role, uh, I think there's some of the experts argue that there is a case to be made that that in itself was facilitating right. um, the activities of ISIS. So in the meantime, you know, as I said at the outset, these are challenging cases for the RCMP to to investigate, uh, to build a case against somebody. So I would imagine maybe some of this has to do with resources, priorities. But what can we say for sure? What have the RCMP said about how how they're treating these cases? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things. One, yes, it's they're they're very very challenging. It's very challenging to investigate any foreign fighter that goes abroad and engage in these kind of things because. How do you really collect evidence in the battlefield? But there are, have been ways of solving that. Uh, different countries have been sharing battlefield evidence and, and testimony they've collected. Um, so there is some attempt to overcome that. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a big it's a big challenge. And then of course, police gather the evidence, but it has to go to prosecutors who uh, have to make a decision on charging. And, that, and with terrorism charges, they have to go to the attorney general to be signed off. So there, there are several layers to overcome in trying to bring a prosecution for terrorism. And for whatever reason, when it comes to women in Canada, um, they just are not being met. And by the way, Stuart, when we look at the, the, the list of these, these women or some of these cases, are we talking mostly about individuals who basically made their own way back here? Or does this involve some of those cases where we have kind of repatriated individuals? Uh, well, the, the ones I looked at um, are ones where the government has actually brought them back. So, okay. Uh, starting last October, the, the uh, Global Affairs Canada began repatriating women that were held at, uh, by Kurdish fighters in Syria. So there have been three repatriations so far, um, and uh, they've basically secured the release from these uh, these prison camps, Right. Blown them back to Canada, but of those, only one has been charged so far. Much more is mentioned. Globalnews.ca. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. All the best. That's uh, Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell and an in depth piece uh, from him uh, in conjunction with uh, reporter Jeff Semple looking at these uh, women, these cases, women that have come back or been brought back who've been under a, a terrorism peace bond for the most part, but have not faced any charges. I guess if we want to feel better about how governments have responded to all of this, uh, most of these men have been charged with crimes. So, yeah, at least there is a, an effort to, to prosecute some of these cases, but is there a different perception? Is it perceived that these men are more of a threat? These women are less of a threat? Maybe those cases are being prioritized over others or something else going on here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.